Caring for our ageing parents feels hard because it is hard. The conversations around ageing and care are often taboo and really not spoken about. This conversation is an invitation to the freedom that can come from talking about ageing. I'm Ali Hill and welcome to Standout Life, a podcast dedicated to exploring what does it take to live boldly in a busy world. Melissa Levy is a clinical psychologist specialising in older people's mental health and dementia. With over a decade of experience in one of Australia's leading hospitals, St Vincent's Hospital in Sydney, Melissa has helped more than a thousand older people and their families, so she has a few things to say on this topic. In this conversation, we dive into the hard things about bringing up the reality of ageing, the reality of illness and the next steps with those that we love the most. These are not easy conversations and yet all too often they are left until it's too late or they're not had at all. Being able to know and fulfil the wishes of those that we love can be incredibly gratifying but it starts with knowing what these wishes are. This conversation is one that will leave you thinking differently about ageing and about the conversations that we don't have. Enjoy this conversation with Melissa Levy. Melissa, it is such a delight to be chatting with you and I'm, I don't think excited is the word, but I'm really fascinated and I'm looking forward to this conversation around ageing and what that means. So great to connect with you. Nice to speak to you, Ali, and maybe our goal today is that by the end of the podcast, you maybe feel a bit excited about the whole aging thing and broaching these conversations. And yeah, so let's see if we can like maybe kick up some of that excitement. Beautiful. Let's move it from a four out of 10 to a nine, yeah. <laughs> eight or a nine out of 10. We'll see where we go. But before we jump into that, tell me a little bit about your background. Yeah. So I was born and raised in Sydney. All of my grandparents came here from Eastern Europe um, after the Holocaust. They were all Holocaust survivors. I was incredibly close to them growing up. You know, in my family, love and enmeshment are sort of one and the same. So yeah, I had just, was really lucky, I suppose, had a really loving family around me. And when I was sort of thinking about what I wanted to do career-wise, I always knew that I wasn't one to sort of sit at a computer. I wanted a very sort of human profession, a helping profession. My dad's sort of tagline is make a difference, that someone should live a better life, even if only slightly for the fact that you've existed. So in our home, like service and contribution were really a huge focus. And, you know, we were the beneficiaries of that, or my grandparents were when they came here um, after the war. So we were very mindful of that idea of contribution. So I guess that sort of um, informed my thinking around career. So I settled on psychologist, even though I'm sure my Jewish grandmothers would have loved doctor. Um, <laughs> but I can't, I can't do it. I can't do the, the blood and the, oh, no. Um, so I settled on psychologist. And when I started my master's of clinical psychology back in about 2010, it would have been, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. So I just unwaveringly wanted to work with kids. It was my passion. It was my love. Um, so that is what I'd been working towards for sort of, you know, my six year study program. And we had to nominate some placements um, for our final year of master's where for six months you go work in like a real world service. And I put down, of course, you know, every child and adolescent 
placement option I could find. And one day I bumped into my clinic director and she said it was really stressful finding everyone's placements. So I said, oh, you know, well, don't worry about me. Like I'll take anything, meaning any of my three preferences. Um, And Ali, I think you get a sense of where this is going. Um, (laughs) And then of course, you know, I was given a placement for six months working in an older adults mental health service. Oh, so I did what anyone would do. I ran into the stairwell, called my mom and cried. And, you know, in hindsight, what I realized is I wasn't even crying so much over the disappointment of missing out on working with children. I was crying because I was scared. I was genuinely fearful of working with older people because all of those sort of, I guess, stereotypes and like negative images started to swirl in my mind. Like, I remember saying to my mom, like, you know, I I don't want to see anyone die. You know, I don't want to see people who are sick. I don't want to see, you know, it's so depressing. How can I help them? You know, what can I do for them? So flash forward and, you know, it was sort of my first day of placement. You know, I was pretty beside myself. But as the sort of weeks wore on, my supervisor started to slowly introduce me to patients. And it was just one of those... It was, I mean, as you know how this turns out, it was life-changing. Everything that I thought I knew about later life was so wrong. And I just learned that we can make a huge, huge difference in that chapter of life. That things like being depressed or anxious or socially isolated, these aren't inevitabilities of getting older. And we can treat them and we should be building social structures and systems to prevent them and Um, You know, that later life can be a time of thriving and growth and, and also that one of the greatest gifts I think that we can give our loved ones, and this is something, you know, I'd love to touch on today is, you know, I've seen people, so over the past sort of more than a decade, I've worked with more than a thousand families and helped them sort of navigate this aging journey. And I've come to know two things to be true. I think the first is we all share the same fears, and questions about aging, all of us. The second is that when you ask people what they fundamentally want, what is your like greatest wish or hope for your later years, almost every person will say, I just want to know that I'll be able to live out my life in a way that is meaningful to me, that is in accordance with my wishes and values. And that will look really, really different for every person. But I think that's ultimately what we want. We sort of, you know, want to remain the authors of our lives. We want to Mm. live in a way where every day we're touching on a sense of meaning, a sense of connection, a sense of belonging. And what I've come to learn is that illness, while it can make those things harder, it doesn't automatically negate them. And that's really what I'd love to maybe talk about today. And that's what I hope people also get from the book is just this idea that, yes, later life can be hard, but there is so much that we can do to make it easier. So fascinating. And really where you talk about even that statement of saying to your mum, it's just so depressing or it's just so sad. I think there are times for most people, most of us and most of us listening have, have even thought of that or heard that in conversations and it can be that. Um, and hearing you talk about that is just the, the importance of having a sense of agency, a sense of that I'm heard and decisions aren't just kind of handed over to 
to someone else. So it sounds amazing that that was such a, you know, you go from either end of the life spectrum yeah. from, from working with kids and adolescents to going, actually, there's a whole world here that uh, that we need to kind of dive into. And no doubt that's been obviously your body of work. Tell me a little bit about your grandpa and how his story informs your work. Yeah, so um, my grandfather, I called him my Zeta. So he, oh gosh, I don't even know where to begin. He was someone who was larger than life. You know, those people who walk into a room and it is just magnetic. So he was someone who was um, born and raised in Romania in a small village. And he sort of brought a lot of those very sort of like we call it a shtetl, like small community values um, to our family here in Australia. So um, he lived in Melbourne. I used to travel very often down to spend time with him. Um, and he used to, whenever I would arrive, he would say, you know, Melissa, we're going to put together a program. And he would put together like a plan for our time together. And it always included what he would call like time in his study, where we would sit there and he would say to me, Melissa, your Zayda's not going to be here forever. Pick my brain, darling. Pick my brain. And we would sit in his study. My, my grandmother, my softer would bring us like tea and biscuits, but we would sit there for literally hours, two, three hours. And he would tell me stories from his childhood or his life. And of course, at the time, you know, being sort of a, I would have been maybe a young teenager then into my later teens, maybe just on early 20s, you know, you're really just enthralled by the story. But what I realized in hindsight is that he was really teaching me what it means to live a good life, what a life well lived looks like, that these were stories about the importance of relationships, about respect, about contribution, about values and and a philosophy that has shaped my life. Um, And he would always say that, when, when they arrived at Auschwitz, the last thing that his mother said to him as they were sort of herded from the cattle trains to the gates of Auschwitz, his mother said, Zaya mensch fargot and farlad, and it's Yiddish and it means be a good human being for God and for people. And that was sort of, oh, the, mm. that was the philosophy of his life. Mm. Oh, every it's time. so powerful to have. Yeah. Every time. <laughs> I got goosebumps as you, as you said that and uh, the context of that statement is just, you know, something I don't think we can ever truly wrap our heads around what that would have been like for a mother to say that to, to a, a child, child and for, for him to then be sharing that with you in the study over tea and bickies but at the other end of having lived it no doubt was was such a gift for you to to be sitting in that space absolutely and i think that's what i learned and and i think for everyone and, and anyone who's listening if you have older people in your life i think sometimes we tend to think that spending time with them is a good deed or a gift that we are doing we are giving them the gift we are doing them the favor by spending the time with them keeping them company and I've just got to tell you I mean you are but my god you are getting it back tenfold like what you get in response that sense of perspective and wisdom that it only comes after having lived a full life of 70 80 90 years 
And then what happened in my sort of um, early 20s was our roles in that study was sort of reversed for the first time. So my grandfather, Maizeda, loved technology. So when he heard of something called the internet um, and something called the email um, and YouTube, he got so excited about YouTube because he had a cousin in America that called him up and said, you can find so much music on YouTube. So he, he wanted to learn. So our roles were sort of reversed and um, it became sort of a 10-year class, I suppose, in teaching him how to use the computer, how to use an iPhone. And I guess the, the reason I mention that is because the, probably the most salient memory I have as to how my Zeta has influenced me professionally is that I remember going down to visit him he had been diagnosed with dementia, mixed Alzheimer's vascular dementia. And at the time of his diagnosis, though, he was still functioning pretty well. So while it sort of rocked us and shook us as a family, because nobody wants to hear that someone they love has sort of the D word, mm. the truth is day-to-day -day, things didn't change so much. Um, so we sort of clung on to that. That gave us comfort. We sort of sheltered maybe a little bit naively in that. And I remember one trip, I went down, we did computer lessons, and I noticed that he wasn't sort of retaining things as easily. I was having to write things down. Um, we were having to practice things a lot more repetitively. And I left, and I remember landing on Sydney tarmac on the Sunday night, and it was pouring with rain, turned my phone on, and I had about a dozen missed calls, and they were all from my Zeta. So I started listening to the voice messages, and they were sort of really, he was quite agitated and asking where I was. And so I sort of picked up the phone, called him back and he said, you know, Melissa, I don't see you. I don't hear from you. Well, when are you going to come visit your Zayda? And that for me was just this moment of just realizing that we had lost shared memory. Um, and I think for a lot of families walking the journey through dementia, that's, it, it just, it's shattering but what, what happened, what followed that really was that we were sort of thrown very suddenly into dementia and, and caring for my Zeta. And my family just had so many questions and everyone was trying to do their best. But because as a family, we'd never spoken about aging. We'd never spoken about illness. Um, you know, as my parents, because of the Holocaust, they didn't have grandparents. Um, so we we had no sense of, of what was going on and I was only just, just beginning my career and I wanted to help my family. So I would offer them sort of advice from the geriatricians and, you know, the doctors that I spoke to at the hospital and I'd offer it to them. But it was really hard for both of us to work out, like, when does the granddaughter end and when does the professional begin? And that mm. it just didn't work. So I wanted to give them I guess like a guidebook, kind of like a what to expect when you're expecting, but for the other end. Um, and I just, you know, came up empty handed and that's what led me on this journey to writing this book. And, you know, since then I've worked with over a thousand families that have walked different journeys, but often with dementia through aging. And, and I've just learned a lot. I've learned a heck of a lot in terms of, you know, what what we as a family could have done better. And my greatest wish is that my Zeta's story, my patient's stories help other families have a better journey because of what they've been through. 
We're going to dive into this, but I think you've probably no doubt got some really practical things that that people can start to do and start to think about and form a bit of a plan. Your book is called We Need to Talk About Aging. What happens when we don't talk about aging? So I think my family was sort of a case study in this. So what happens when we don't talk about aging? So the, the problem is, and it sounds silly, but this was a huge epiphany to me, is that ignoring or denying issues of aging doesn't make them go away. It doesn't mean we get to avoid the actual aging thing. It's kind of... Come on, Melissa, please. (laughs) If we just deny it, it'll just like, you know, someone else will take care of it. Totally, totally. Just just pass. (laughs) Let the the storm pass. But no, so, so this is the problem, right, is that it is uncomfortable and confronting. And I'm just going to add a little note here to say, I also think that it is uncomfortable and confronting because we avoid it. So we don't know much about it. And it's actually the unknown that is often the most scary. But Mm. that aside, I think what happens when you don't talk about aging is that all it does is it leaves you and your family really vulnerable. So it leaves you ill-prepared. So what, what are the practical implications? Firstly, you probably attribute things to old age that actually maybe could have been treated or better managed. So maybe something has become chronic or something's really limited someone's ability to function in their day-to-day lives. But maybe had we been aware of it and gotten onto it a lot earlier, it may have had a different trajectory. Or we miss the early warning signs of something that actually is chronic, like dementia, Parkinson's disease, But actually, a lot of the sort of treatments for those are most effective earlier in the disease course. So you don't want to miss that window. So you deprive yourself of access to effective treatments. You also limit your options. So one of the things that I always found really probably the the most sort of upsetting in, in the work that I did. So I was at St. Vincent's Hospital for a decade and you would get families in the emergency department where an older person, something sudden happened. They had a fall or they were suddenly really acutely confused and delirious and the family is sort of gathered around this bed and the doctors are saying to them, you know, what do you want me to do? You know, these are the options, A, B, C, D. What should I do? Like what would your loved one have wanted? No one wants to be making those decisions in those circumstances without knowing. Like it's a horrific circumstance as is, but to have the peace of mind of being able to say, oh my gosh, we've spoken about this. I know exactly what mum would have wanted me to say. It, it is still traumatic, but it is so much easier, of course. And, and also in terms of care options, like we've had patients, you know, who have been up on the ward who maybe can't return to their previous living circumstances. They can't go home. So maybe they need to go into residential aged care, but they haven't been assessed yet or they haven't had their name down on waiting lists. So then you're just at the mercy of when a bed becomes available and possibly ending up somewhere that you really don't want to end up. So the problem with not talking about aging is it's going to come and, and it's not a bad thing that it's going to come. Like it means you, you've lived this long, full life. Like think of the alternative, um, you know, aging, aging is actually a privilege, but we sort of treat it as a bit of a burden because it can be hard but I actually think it's the not talking about it that makes it a heck of a lot harder how do you start so again if we go practical 
How do we start that? How do we approach it? Yeah, so I, I love this question, Ali, because I think, you know, this is what it's all about. Like we can talk about these things in principle, but it's like, okay, what do I actually do? Um, so I guess the first thing to say is put on the kettle or pop open a bottle of wine. I mean, maybe the depends how much of the wine you drink. You could end up somewhere very creative. <laughs> but, but I guess the whole idea is often our fears of aging make us think that these conversations have to be really formal or really sterile. And that makes us even more anxious. So, you know, I just think these are dinner table conversations. So, or sitting on the couch or... And so the first thing is just choose a space where you feel comfortable, choose a time where you've got time. These are not conversations that you have in the 10 minutes that you're sort of visiting your nan before picking up your kids. And that, no, <laughs> I also find it's often helpful to have these conversations one-on-one, at least initially, because sometimes when you approach an older person, even with the best of intentions, but there's maybe three or four of you and one of them, it sort of feels like a, you know, intervention. Um, and that's a really uncomfortable yeah. feeling. Mm, so these, it's a good point. These can be more intimate conversations. And the way that I tend to start them is state your intention. So sometimes by raising these topics, it can, for an older person, make them feel maybe a bit vulnerable um, or as though you're trying to impinge upon their independence or, you know, it's also a real big shift in the dynamic of parent and child. You know, my mum said to me a lot when my Zeta was going through his dementia, you know, she kept saying like, darling, you have to remember, I'm the daughter, you're the granddaughter. So people can become a bit protective of roles. But the way that I tend to open up the conversation is just to be sort of really open and honest. So one possible way is to say something like, I just want to talk to you about something that's been weighing on my mind. It's really important to me. You know, we we know that, you know, now you're really healthy and well and vital, but it's life can be unpredictable. We also hope that you're here for 20, 30, 40 years, but I just want to know a bit more about what you want. So I think that's the frame of it really is like, it's about what the older person themselves wants. Another helpful way to do it is sort of, you know, thinking about a friend maybe that has had this experience. So saying, you know, My friend Rose, you know, recently spoke to her mum about this and they thought it would be really hard, but actually it was really bonding. And this was, you know, these were the benefits for the two of them. Like Rose's mum now feels really reassured that her family understand what she wants. Her family feel less anxious about the future because they all know um, her mum's wishes and they're starting to maybe plan for the future, you know, maybe look into care options, you know, seek some financial planning advice. The other way you can do it, um, and I've done this, you know, using my family story, is to basically also to point out where it goes wrong and basically say, you know, things like, you know, Dad, do you remember John? He had his stroke and he ended up here. And, you know, we don't, we've always said that we would never want that for us, but how do we actually realistically stop that from being our story? And I think we need to sort of talk about these things. And some of the topics that you probably want to touch on, you don't need to have all of the advice. You don't need to know sort of the medical conditions or the the care options or that all you're doing is opening a conversation and all you're wanting to distill are the wishes of your loved one. Then you can seek professional help to help you get there and, and develop a bit of a roadmap and a plan. 
That sense of starting the conversation of it's been weighing on my mind, this is really important to me, but also acknowledging because I think sometimes we, you know, I'm going to generalise here or kind of bring it to myself, we don't want to acknowledge the decline that is inevitable when someone is really well and vital and you want to have a belief in in their strength. Uh, so it's it's almost kind of can feel like you're bringing forward time if we bring it up now and wait for when it's inevitable or wait for a rapid decline or a diagnosis and then we'll talk about it. But I think the way you phrase that is just such a lovely gift to go. It's been weighing on my mind. It's really important. Acknowledging where you are in the many years to come and this can be a really great time for me to know what what you're thinking. And, and Ali, I love that you mentioned that because something else to say is also that this whole idea of like the inevitable sort of decline and frailty of later life. Like there are a lot of doctors and scientists that are sort of advocating the position that maybe it's not inevitable. And I guess one of the ways to decrease sort of the likelihood of some of these things is, you know, we now know, for example, with dementia, it was used used to be sort of thought that one patient's son said to me, you know, what are you going to do? Dementia, if it's going to get you, it's going to get you. But we now know from a study that was um, published in The Lancet, that was this huge study, basically 40% of all dementia cases worldwide are attributable to modifiable risk factors. So lifestyle factors within our control, things like cardiovascular health, things like diet, things like social connection, things like mental stimulation. So the other bonus of having these conversations early is, you know, as you say, like, mum, you're so strong, you're so vital, you're so well. Why don't we maybe start thinking about, like, if your wish is to, I guess, retain all of this as you age, I wonder if there's stuff that maybe we could be looking into now preventative measures to to boost your health and to protect against dementia and protect against disease um so that can also be maybe a nice way of framing it this is going to be probably one of those impossible questions to ask but when is the best time to have these conversations so I guess I always tend to say and this is you know painful in a response but never too early never too late but I just I want to unpack that a little bit so I guess the first thing is these conversations are not set and forget. This is not one conversation because your circumstances, your health, your finances, and your wishes for yourself change over time. So I'll give you an example. I had a beautiful older gentleman called Arthur. That's a not his real name, but basically he had a number of different health conditions. Um, so he had like chronic um, heart failure. He had sort of the, the beginnings of like a dementia profile. He had like all, all these whole diabetes that was problematic and difficult to manage. And basically his wish for his whole life had been to stay at home with care But he reached a point where he was sort of on, you know, the highest level of government funding for home care and his family and and himself sort of funding the rest. But they reached a point where he needed, started needing more overnight care and they just couldn't afford it at home. And John's wish historically was that actually his kids would step up and provide that care. But when that point came, he said, I can't do that to my kids. Like I I don't want my kids coming and caring for me. I don't want them helping me to go shower or to the bathroom or, you know, 
So his wish that was really consistent over many, many, many years changed. And I guess the reason I mentioned Mm -hmm. that is just the idea that it's just not a single conversation. And so when I say never too early, I mean, I've had some of these conversations, you know, with my poor husband, um, just because life is uncertain. Um, and I never want him to be the guy who stands in the emergency department next to my bed and has to make big decisions without knowing exactly what I want. I'm also a type A control Mm. freak. So I like to plan everything, even my own demise. Um, (laughs) but, but, but I, I would say realistically when someone's getting maybe into their sort of late sixties, seventies, I would be having these conversations. Um, I'd make it more of a pressing priority because you Mm -hmm. want to plan. So, you know, maybe you want to put your name down on a waiting list and you think, oh, I'm never going to need that, but you have the option. You know, have it and not need it rather than need it and not have it. Um, And then I also say it's never too late. So even if you're a family that's totally avoided these conversations, like my family, my grandfather, just a couple of months before he died, was quite unwell and we were deliberating on whether to send him back into hospital. And it was at that point that we as a family sat down and really reflected on what his wishes were, what a hospital admission would likely entail and that he always wanted to die in his own home. And we actually made the decision as a family to keep him at home. So that was a really late in the piece conversation. But there, I guess what I want maybe people to know is that there are always options, always, always, always. Even if you're at the very end, there are so many options for palliative care. There are so many options for how, you know, we experience end of life. And the other benefit of these conversations is Caring for an aging loved one is going to be one of the hardest things we ever do in our lives, but this conversation is a gift to them because it relieves Mm. so much angst and anxiety. It means that they have greater clarity for the future. It allows them to put plans in place. It allows them to seek some professional advice and support. Um, So it's just, it just allows everyone to breathe, I think. One of the things I've found and I'm wondering whether you have as well, it's almost like the relief is I was thinking it anyway, but I didn't want to bring it up (laughs) for fear of scaring you or for fear of, um, and so that, that space being gifted, that space to be able to talk it through, love that sense of it's an ongoing conversation. Absolutely. Like all of us can change our mind, uh, change what we're thinking. Circumstances can change, but you've got the muscle to kind of keep those conversations going. Hearing really clearly from you, just the value of hearing our loved ones or the people around us, what their wishes are, what they value practically again I'm going to come back to the practical what areas should we be like what do you see as the most useful areas to be asking questions of so one of the ones you just mentioned there is where you might spend your final days what other things really practically rather than just going what's your wishes for the rest of your life (laughs) which can feel really open-ended yeah (laughs) yeah what what are some of the specifics that you found incredibly useful uh for both sides of this conversation oh Ali I'm so glad that you brought this up because I think sometimes um yeah I can forget that actually it's really helpful to break it down so some of the really specific questions are things like I, I often start with like what does aging well look like for you so what does a good day look like 
Because I think when you know what a good day looks like, you start to tap into someone's values. So, you know, what matters to them, what's important to them. And that's sort of often like a bit of a sort of fairly benign sort of opening. Um, And then I would probably move on to things like if you were to become unwell, if you were diagnosed with something, what would be the wishes for your medical care? I'll break it down into a specific example here. So it's like, mum or dad, if you were diagnosed with dementia, for example, would you want to be fairly assertive in trying, you know, different medication treatments and like they're called cognitive remediation programs, like brain training programs? And, you know, would you be interested in participating in clinical trials or, you know, what what's your stance on all of that? Or would you rather sort of maybe step away from a bit of that and you know, um, you're you're not as keen to pursue those interventions. Or I think a a really big question is, you know, if you needed care, where would you want that care provided? Would you want to stay in your own home? Would you want to move in with someone? Would you want to move into residential aged care or nursing home care? And that opens a conversation to then look at what are the options there? you know, in terms of more independent retirement living or more supported living. And I guess that that opens up a conversation on, you know, if if you did require care, like, how would we pay for that? You know, how would you want to use your money in your retirement and in later life? So I guess these, the, the big areas that I would touch on, I think, are what is a good day and what matters to mm. you? I think the second is probably just getting them to think about their sort of philosophy around medical care but probably the biggest one for families I would say that's really weighing on their minds is if you needed care what would that look like because I I think that's probably one of the biggest decisions that families sort of need to make and it can have you know probably the greatest impact on a family system or a care system. These conversations happen in family ecosystems so and I love that recommendation of doing it one-on-one as opposed to it feeling like an intervention and we've all been talking about it for months and now we're bringing it to you <laughs> but it's it's over a cuppa or a glass of something um, and it's more just a conversational hey I've been thinking about this and that can be really valuable one-on-one. What happens when we move into a family ecosystem is we can have differing opinions there can be different kind of levels of we're going to throw every bit of care possible at this person because we need them to you know live as long as possible because we really value and love having them around which is not right or wrong but there there can be this dynamic within uh, an ecosystem you mentioned before even um, your mum saying look you know this is my role this is my even generationally that that can kind of happen what have you seen help or be valuable to think of in terms of the conversations, not when they're one-on-one with the the individual whose care and wishes we might be talking about uh, and listening to, but in the dynamic of family. What have you seen work well and what to be mindful of? Yeah, so I I think of a, um, a patient that I looked after and he was from South Africa. He himself was a retired GP. So he was really familiar with all of the medical options and was really, really clear on his wishes. But he had five daughters and every daughter, literally every daughter had a different idea for what would be best for their dad. And each daughter was sort of liaising with a different subset of 
medical professionals. So their dad, he was quite an unwell man, but he had every ologist. He had a neurologist, a cardiologist, an endocrinologist, and every ologist was sort of liaising with a different daughter. So the way that we sort of got everyone on the same page, and I just want to emphasize this, that if you're feeling that a conversation like this is putting strain on relationships or is going pear-shaped, you don't need to push the point in that moment. Maintaining your relationships with your older loved one or with each other is so, so, so important because family discord and conflict just makes this time of life so much harder and it becomes a bit explosive. But one of the ways to get everyone on the same page is rather than having individual conversations, so sometimes you have the conversation with the older person and then you become the mouthpiece that relays it to your brother who then relays it to his wife and his wife had this experience with her you know, mother and mm. that is often unhelpful, these offline conversations. So what I often suggest is if the older person is comfortable, getting everyone in the same room. So you probably need a bigger pot of tea um, or a second bottle of wine, but just getting everyone in the same room. And I often start by letting everyone sort of share what is their wish for their loved ones. So everyone can say it. And if there are incompatibilities there, that's okay. Let's work through them now when there's no crisis, there's no pressure, when everyone's sort of like relatively calm. And the, the truth is though, at the end of the day, the person whose wishes really need to be respected are the older persons. So even if the different members of the family system have slightly different opinions, it's about acknowledging that, sort of validating that and trying to work that in. But it has to be the older person themselves, it's their wishes, their preferences. So one daughter might say, you know, but dad, you can come live with me. And dad might say, I really don't want to. I want to keep living in my home with you know, and and pay for for carers to come in. Or someone else might say, oh, but dad, you know, it's so much more social if you go to a retirement village. And, you know, my friend, um, Sarah's dad is there and he loves it. Um, And dad's like, no, that is okay. Like, and I just want to touch on, look, it it gets into sort of like complicated, maybe murky water around decision-making capacity. But I just want to say that Unless there is objective evidence and there's been an assessment to suggest that an older person lacks decision-making capacity, it is presumed it is a fundamental human right. We all have the right to self-determination and autonomy, and that doesn't change just because we've got an older. And there's also a really complicated um I guess, add on to this, which is dignity of risk. So I remember a lady who we were looking after who was living in a squalid apartment, but it was so badly squalid that when you opened the door, you had to climb over piles of, I think there were newspapers and books and clothes. And she was actually sleeping in the bathtub because her bedroom was so heavily squalid. It was It was just heartbreaking. And of course, her son was so concerned about this. He lived overseas and he knew that over the course of his life that mum had lived in varying degrees of sort of hoarding or squalor, but this was sort of the worst that it had become. And he wanted to basically go to the guardianship tribunal and essentially become mum's decision maker and force her to move into supported living and care. But we had all these different specialists come and do assessments. You know, we had a clinical neuropsychologist test her thinking skills and we had, 
And fundamentally, the decision of the guardianship tribunal was that she still had decision-making capacity and also that she was entitled to something called dignity of risk, which is, you know, this behaviour is in keeping with her long-standing personality and preferences and living arrangements. And it was her overwhelming wish to continue to live there in those conditions. There were offers for free, like squalor and hoarding support and cleaning. She didn't want it. So I guess I just want to add that in there, that sometimes it's really hard as adult children who want to do the best for their parents or older loved ones. But we have to do that dance of like, yes, we want to make sure that you're safe and well looked after and well cared for, but you also have the right to make your own decisions. But yeah, but I think sort of coming back to your question, I think having everyone in the same room can be really helpful and just airing everybody's different perspective, um, but always recognizing that the older person themselves, that their perspective is actually sort of the compass that, that everyone sort of needs to, to follow. You touched on before, and I know you dive into this in the book, that there are things um, and experiences that can sometimes be put down to, oh, that's just them getting older, and yet there can be great supports for those, one of those being around depression and anxiety later in life. We might put it down to they're just a bit down or they're just a bit kind of that's just mom or dad or great uncle that's just what they're they're like so it might go undiagnosed or even and certainly untreated what would be helpful or what are some misconceptions about particularly if we were to look at depression anxiety later in life yeah I can't help but think of a client a patient that I saw um, who I'll call Sophia so her husband took her to the GP in the context of weight loss Um, And she was quite fatigued, was having trouble sleeping. Um, In particular, she would wake at about three, four in the morning and just could not get back to sleep. And the Sophia kept saying, you know, I'm, I'm not sick. I'm just an old woman. I'm just an old woman. This was my mother. I knew this would be sort of, you know, my journey as I got later in my life. And the doctor said, look, you know, he did some, you know, basic investigations around blood tests and this and that. And he said to her, look, you're, you're right, you're not physically sick, but I think you're suffering from depression. And she was so sort of shocked by this. And we went out to assess her. And sure enough, um, she had um, this sort of pattern that we see in mood where she would be at her lowest first thing in the morning and then feel a bit better in herself by sort of mid to late afternoon. That's called diurnal mood variation. It's sort of a really strong biological sort of marker of depression. She had early morning waking, had lost interest in everything. So, you know, she used to love going to her local club for line dancing was her activity of choice, dance of choice. Um, she'd stop going to line dancing. She used to meet some girlfriends for lunch. She'd stop doing that. And again, just said, you know, but of course I'm not doing these things anymore. I'm an older woman. So I saw her for psychological treatment. Um, and probably not to your surprise, it took a little while for us to build rapport and to sort of get her on board. And I remember actually in one of the reviews, the psychiatrist who had also started her on some antidepressant medication said, you know, oh, and you know, how have you found, you know, seeing Melissa? And she goes, oh, it's lovely. You know, she comes to my home. We have a cup of tea. 
I don't know why she sees me. And I thought, oh, that's a, that's a good testament to, to the, the effectiveness of, um, but, but over time, so the antidepressants started to kick in. We started to see a shift in her biological symptoms. Her weight stabilized. She was sleeping a bit later in the morning. Her mood wasn't quite as low first thing in the morning. And her and I were just working on really sort of gradually like re-engaging in the activities that sort of brought her life meaning. And initially she was very reluctant um, and we actually went to a line dancing session together, class together. Um, and she said, you know, I, I don't like it anymore. I don't enjoy it anymore, which is that sort of classic, you know, um, symptom of depression. Mm. But we just sort of kept going back and sure enough over time, you know, reconnecting with those things brought her sort of, you know, back to herself. And I remember in one of our last sessions, I saw her and she was wearing this bright pink lippy. And I said, oh, I've never seen you with lippy on. You know, you look fantastic. And her husband said, this is how I know my wife is now well, because she wore that lipstick every single day. Every day of her life, she wore lippy. And obviously when she became depressed, you know, it no longer really mattered to her. So I guess it's really down to those sort of stereotypes, like the grumpy old man or the worried old biddy that we think, oh, you know, of course they're like that. No, 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 no. That is just not, it is not a natural or inevitable part of aging. These are separate treatable conditions that are sort of superimposed on the aging process. So yeah, I think if anyone is worried that, someone they love, an older person they love could be depressed or anxious um, and you want to maybe raise it with them, but you're not quite sure how, just a few sort of just quick tips. I think the first thing is I wouldn't necessarily go in there and say, you know, mum, you're depressed. We need to get on top of this. That's, that's pretty <laughs> confronting. Maybe if you have that relationship with your mum, it might work. Um, but I would often rather speak to the symptoms that you've noticed and be really specific. Like, you know, mum, you used to love when the grandkids come over and now I find, you know, maybe you're wanting to see them less and less. Or, mum, you seem a lot more tired. You know, I've called a few times at maybe two in the afternoon and you seem to be a bit groggy from having been asleep. Or, mum, aunt so-and-so says she hasn't seen you in a while. Or, you know, mum, you look like you've lost a bit of weight. So maybe talk to the symptoms because your goal really is not to convince them of a diagnosis. It's just to get them to pop down to their GP. That's it. You just want them to head over to the GP. And the other thing I'll say, and I'll probably now get dozens of GPs calling me saying, why did you say this? Um, but it is what I would do for my mom or my dad is because of um, doctor-patient confidentiality, unless your loved one has given you special permissions to talk to your GP, they can't disclose things to you. But that doesn't stop you from calling the doctor and saying, look, I don't want to know anything. I am just calling to say I am really worried my mom or my dad might be depressed. And you can just leave it at that so that when your mom or dad goes for their next physical health checkup or goes there because of the weight loss or the sleeplessness, your G the GP has it in the back of their mind. It's been flagged so they can assess for it. I was going to ask you about navigating the world of health professionals because I think part of stepping into these conversations is starting to advocate for and, you know, some of that kind of dismissing this is just me getting old, even that story that you kind of described, then, yeah, you know, one of the re practical realities might be that some of that information is either not shared with a GP 
or it's um, underplayed or downplayed uh, from from that experience. Do you have any other recommendations on navigating the world of kind of health professionals? So even as you were kind of talking about that story, I think obviously your GP being a really important first stage, short of having people call you and say, hey, Melissa, we need yeah. you. <laughs> <laughs> um, and get overwhelmed. I can tell but you, I'm, sometimes we don't even know, as you say. I'm, I'm a much harder sell than a GP. <laughs> She's good for a cup that's of tea. It. Good people. for a cup like, <laughs> Delightful visit, not terribly helpful. Um, so, the, so, and this is why having some of those conversations early with your loved one. This is this is one of those mm. conversations, like you know, mom or dad, like as you're getting older, to, to what extent do you want me involved in your healthcare? Like, you know, are you happy for me to come with you to your medical appointments? Or, and as you say, within a family system, maybe it's about appointing, you know, one of the siblings or one of the children to sort of be that like health liaison person. Mm-hmm. And so there's a tricky thing because I guess there's a, a sort of like a, from a, legal sort of medical legal perspective and then there's from a sort of yes. you know, practical perspective so from a medical legal perspective really it's um it is up to your parent again if your parent possesses decision making capacity it is up to them to decide the degree of involvement that they want you to have in their health care but by the same token I think you could definitely make a case to the older people in your life of the merits of going to appointments with them just in terms of being a second set of eyes and ears, being able to drive them. You can offer, you know, the practicalities of, of transport. and But also just recognising that, you know, possibly, um, you know, particularly if your parents have been diagnosed with a chronic condition or are managing multiple conditions, just in terms of the complexities of that, that it can be really helpful to have a second person there. Um, and it also gives your loved one the opportunity to tell you where their comfort lies. So they might say, Ali, happy for you to come with us and even, you know, maybe sit in the consult or maybe you'll meet the doctor, but we don't want you to come into the consult. Or maybe we want Mm. you to come into the consult, but don't say anything. Just take notes. Don't say anything. Or someone might say, you know, sure, at the end, ask questions. Um, But if you have a loved one who has said, nope, don't want you involved in my healthcare, you are not welcome at my appointments. Don't do what one of my client's daughters did, which was find out the appointment details and rock up. That is never a good plan it never ever ends well um, to not do that that was that was fun to manage but yeah it's if if your loved one doesn't want you there that's fine you can respect their wishes but if you have genuine concerns about their health well-being safety as I said you are within your right to ring up and voice those concerns. You could ask your loved one if they're happy for you to send a letter or note with them. Um, So you can start to be creative about finding other ways to communicate um, with their doctors and healthcare professionals. If you are keen to explore further resources for these types of conversations and tools, then Melissa's book, We Need to Talk About Aging, is a great starting point. We also have links to other resources that Melissa shares in the show notes, including her website, talkingaging.com. Thank you so much for joining myself and Melissa in this important conversation. And if for nothing else, this conversation has left me wanting to make sure that I'm equipped to have these types of conversations with the people around me when my time comes. And I hope 
that it's opened that up for you as well. Once again, thanks so much for tuning in, for your ongoing support and for joining me in exploring what does it really take. As always, this is Standout Life Podcast and I'm Ali Hill.